Amen. And uh, we're grateful that because of, of Christ and his sacrifice that our, our souls can have new life and arise. Amen. Well, uh, it's a joy to be with you again this week and to open up the Word of God uh, with you. And it's my prayer that as we work through today a challenging text, that you would leave with the same kind of encouragement that Daniel received when these words were first revealed to him. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. As we pointed out the last time we were here, uh, the revelation that Daniel receives is an answer to prayer. That's an answer to, to Daniel's prayer for his people, uh, for his people Israel. Uh, but the vision that Daniel receives uh, reaches far beyond Israel and extends to the blessing and the hope for the entire world. And the answer to Daniel's prayer is still our hope for today. Uh, the answer to Daniel's prayer for God to forgive, to take action, to deliver his people was answered by the promise that transgression would come to a conclusion that sin would ultimately come to an end, that iniquity would be atoned for, that everlasting righteousness would be brought to the earth, that all visions and prophecies would come to a close, and that the holy place would be anointed. And uh, that's an answer to prayer that every believer can rejoice in, and we've only just begun to work our way uh, through this magnificent prophecy. And all that's found just in verse 24. We're in uh, chapter 9, verses 24 to, to 27, and all that's found just in, in 24. This is just an incredible prophecy, and the future is here revealed to us so that we might know that God will be glorified, that his people will be comforted, and that as Romans chapter 8 and verse 21 says, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And uh, Psalm 30 adds this thought, Psalm 30 and verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And what that reminds us of is that there is coming an end to trouble. And can we say amen to that? There's coming an end to trouble. There's, there's an old song uh, that I remember that said, uh, trouble don't last always. It's uh, bad grammar, but it's great theology. <laughs> trouble will not last always, Right? There's, there's an end to trouble, and we can say, thank God, that there is coming an end to trouble. And this prophecy in Daniel points all of us beyond the temporary troubles of life. Uh, Daniel's captivity in Babylon would come to an end uh, and would really result in a much greater freedom that would come when God wraps up all vision, wraps up all prophecy, and brings in everlasting righteousness. And that's what we find in Daniel chapter 9. The curtains of creation will not close with trouble having the last laugh. Uh, there's, there's a saying that he who laughs last, laughs what? Best. And who sits in the heavens and laughs? God does. <laughs> God sits in the heavens and God laughs. God scoffs at those that would oppose him. And we'll get there later in Daniel chapter 12, but it's revealed that the world is heading for even more trouble and distress than we've ever seen before. Actually, if you take your, your Bibles and flip over to, over to Daniel chapter 12, just to show you this, Daniel chapter 12, start at verse 1 here. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. There's coming a time of trouble like we've never seen before, but thankfully that's not where the story ends. It doesn't end with 
with the trouble such as has never occurred since there was a, a nation. Look at the, the second half of verse one. And at that time, at that time of the, the greatest distress, the greatest trouble, at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. When, when, when the, 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 the world becomes the darkest, that's when God says, I will bring you one who will rescue you. You will be rescued. Look at verse two. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Those, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. We're not there yet. We're not there in chapter 12 yet. And uh, we haven't seen this yet. But just to think about this is incredible, isn't it? That, that when the world becomes the darkest, that at that time, there will come one who will rescue. And those who are dead, those who die in the Lord, will be resurrected to life to enjoy the freedom of the sons of God. That is incredible to think about. Just as the world gets it to its absolute worst, God will say, that's enough. <laughs> that's, that's enough. And just like God places boundaries on the seas and says, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop, there's coming a time when God will say no to the destruction and the dismay that we experience in this life. He's going to say, okay, that's enough. This is where your proud waves stop. This is where you're going to cease. His people will be rescued. And those who have already passed on into the presence of God will arise from the dust of the ground. And there's going to be a global takeover. Heaven and earth belong to our God. And there's coming a future, not only for heaven, but also for this earth. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13, if you look just a little bit further, in verse 13, Daniel is told, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. That's, that's pretty specific, isn't it? He says you're going to rise again and you're going to experience, you're going to find your allotment. You, you will receive your allotment, your allotted portion at the end of the age. When those who are rescued on this earth are met by those who rise up from the, the dust of the earth, he says at that time you're going to receive your appointed portion. Pretty specific. I guess my, my question is, do you have room in your understanding of the end times for that? But if you get nothing else from today's message, mark this down. There is an expiration date for trouble. <laughs> there is an expiration date for trouble. God has placed a limit on the world's distress, and Daniel marks his calendar with 70 weeks. And today, we'll jump into what that means and hopefully bring some clarity to this section of Scripture for us. So let's turn back to Daniel chapter 9, and we'll start at verse 24. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you today as we always do. Father, as we recognize that, that this is your word and these are your people. And, and your people eat from your word. This is what the sheep need. This is what nourishes the sheep. This is what blesses the sheep. It's your word, Lord, that, that brings us health, that gives us stability. Father, it's your word that even gives us life. We've been born again by this truth. And Father, I pray that as we open up your word, the words of, of life, words that are profitable, all of scripture is profitable. Father, I pray that we would find profit in what we read even today. 
And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 24 opens up with 70 weeks, 70 weeks. I remember when I was in, uh, in junior high, my teacher was uh, trying to explain to me the, the benefits of the metric system because all the measurements come in groups of 10. So uh, 10 milliliters make a centimeter, 10 centimeters make a decimeter, and 10 decimeters make a meter. And you can work your way all the way through the system to kilometers and beyond. But in English, we use things like inches. And how many inches come in a foot? 12. And how many feet make up a yard? Three. And for the people who don't use our system, that can become confusing because it's like, why 12? <laughs> why, why 12? Why, why pick the number 12? You know, why is that significant? But for us, it makes sense because that's what we use all the time, right? There's 12 hours in each portion of the day. There's 12 months in every year. We buy eggs in a dozen, unless you get them from Costco, and then you can get them a lot bigger. We buy roses in a dozen if we can afford it. We pick up donuts in boxes of a dozen, unless you come right before the donut shop closes. I was uh, with my friend Todd Murray, and he was telling me a story about when he pulled up to a donut shop right before it closed, and they just gave him everything that they had. And he was telling me this story as we're going to a donut shop right before they closed. And guess what? They gave us everything they had. <laughs> we came home with like three boxes of donuts, you know, three dozen donuts or whatever. So, uh, so, but it's just natural for us to think in dozens and twelves. And for the ancient Israelite, it would have been just as easy to think in units of seven. Just as easy as it is for us to think in units of twelve, it would have been just as easy for them to think in units of seven. And why would... A unit of seven makes sense for them. Are you ready for, for a little Bible study? We're, we're, we're not in a rush, are we? We're not going anywhere, right? Why don't, why don't you flip over to Exodus chapter 31? Exodus chapter 31. Just, just a little Bible study on this. What we find in Exodus 31 is that the Sabbath day came in a unit of, of seven. Look at chapter 31 and verse 13. Actually, I'll start at verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I've, I've set you apart. I've sanctified you. And part of that setting you apart is to recognize the Sabbath day. Look at verse 16. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a perpetual covenant, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. And uh, the Lord didn't need a break because he expended all of his energy. Uh, this is actually a, a model for, for us. And so you have this, this order of six days you work and the one day that you, you rest. So it's, it's the week. It's a, the seventh day in the week. And that was important to, to Israel. But not only was the seventh day in a week important to Israel, so was the seventh year in a cycle of years. Why don't you uh, look a little bit forward into the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25. Take a look at verse 1, Leviticus 25, starting at verse 1. It 
It says, the Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. But, it, but it's not a week here. It's not six, six days of a week. Look what he says in verse three. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its, in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. They're allowed to, to harvest their crops, but whatever grew after the harvest, uh, they were supposed to leave it alone, let the land rest. They weren't to, to sow or to prune it, just, just reap the benefits of being the people of God. It was a, a recognition that God gave them this land that they had and that God was the one who provided for them, even if they didn't work for that year on that land. God was still providing. And just like God provided manna you know, on that, that sixth day, provided twice for the seventh day, in the same way, God was responsible to provide twice as much as they would need in that sixth year so they could have it for the, the seventh year. It was a recognition that, hey, God is above us. He provides for us. We can rely on him. We can trust in God to provide for that seventh year, even if I'm not plowing that field. But did Israel recognize God as the one who provides everything? We've looked at this before. The answer is no. <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 21 says, they were carried away to Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. God was keeping track. You know, you might have missed it. You might have uh, thought that I forgot about it, but I didn't forget. The land is going to enjoy its Sabbaths and it's going to keep those Sabbaths for 70 years until 70 years are complete. And 70 wasn't a random number. They were sentenced one year for every, every Sabbath year that they missed every Sabbath year that they neglected. You're gonna be charged one year for every year you didn't fulfill my command. And 70 of those years is what God charged to them, 70 sevens. The Sabbath years were that important for Israel. Count every six, mark the seventh. They weren't supposed to round it up, round it down. They weren't supposed to you know, approximate it. Uh, they weren't supposed to, to think of, oh, these years are enough because that's a type of you know, the seventh year, they weren't to do any of that. Seventh year was supposed to be on the calendar, posted on the refrigerator. God would hold you accountable for it. Number three, not only was every seven years important, seven times seven years was also important. Are you starting to get the idea that the calendar was important here? Calendar was important. Seven times seven is what? 49. I think I heard a couple of you say it. 49. And after the 49th year was a year known as the year of Jubilee, Jubilee. And the word Jubilee simply means a ram's horn. It was a, a trumpet, you know, and the, the ram's horn was a, a trumpet that was blown throughout the land to let everybody know, hey, the Jubilee has begun. They blow the trumpet. This is the year of Jubilee. What happened in the year of Jubilee? If you're still in Leviticus, look at chapter 25 and verse 8, 25 and verse 8 says, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbath of years, namely 49 years. And you shall sound a ram's horn, again, that's a jubilee, abroad on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. 
and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. So for that 49th year, after they've already taken that Sabbath on that 49th year, they were to take an additional year on the 50th year because it's the year of Jubilee. Now, can you imagine getting a fresh start once in life? (laughs) Can you imagine that? At least once in your lifetime that all your debts are erased? (laughs) I mean, that's, that's what Jubilee was. Can you imagine an entire nation being governed like that? At least once every 50 years, all of your debts are canceled. Whatever property had been taken from you was returned to you. If you were a slave, you'd be set free. And believe me, you would be keeping track of the years (laughs) as it gets closer to the year of of Jubilee. You're not rounding up, rounding down. It's like, no, it's going to be on that date. That's the year that you would look forward to. Look, Look further down into verse 39. Verse 39. It says, if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to, all, to, to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. This would have been the great countdown. Whatever his debts were, canceled, fresh start, Year of emancipation and restoration, it's been called. And it served as a Sabbath rest for the entire land. The year of Jubilee was a reminder to Israel that I am the Lord of all. I'm the Lord of all. You think that land belongs to you? Nope, it belongs to me. That that land that that you're living on, that land that you're farming, that land that you put your house on, you, you think that's yours? Nope, that's mine. That's mine. Leviticus 25, 23 says, the land moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. It belongs to me. The people, you know, the, the people that, that you might have working for you, you, you think they belong to you? Nope, they belong to me. Down in verse 55, for the sons of Israel are my servants. They, they're my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I'm in charge. I'm the one who's the Lord over all. And, and guess, guess who owns time? <laughs> this time that you're living in, you think that you own time? You know, time is your own? No, your time is mine. It belongs to me. The Sabbath years were considered a Sabbath to the Lord. Even the time belongs to God. Have you realized that everything that you are and everything that you have belongs to your creator? You you think you belong to yourself? You think you can do whatever you want with who you are? I can make my own decisions about what I do with my life and how I run my life. You, You think that you have that choice? You think God's left that over to you as if you belong to yourself? 1 Corinthians 6 19 and 20, for those of you who are believers, you should know this verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You don't belong to yourself. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. One of the, the, you know, just, just recently, you know, as I've been thinking about these things, it's like, you know, why, why, you know, as Christians do we, you know, walk in obedience and serve and all these other things? It's because God is worthy of it. And you don't belong to yourself. God is worthy of your service. 
you know, sometimes you can think of, well, I do it for this reason or that reason or for this person or that person. No, you, you, you live your life for God. You, you don't belong to you. I belong to somebody else. And I need to make sure that I'm honoring God with what belongs to him. I've got an account to give. I do not belong to myself. You know, just like you go out and rent a car. You know, some of you, some of you might, you know, let, let's scratch renting a car because you might drive the rental car harder than you drive your own. Let's say you borrow a car from one of your brothers or sisters here in the church. I, I, I assume that you take good care of it, right? Because I know I have to give this back. This, this doesn't belong to me. If you stay in somebody's house, you, you want to make sure you do what they ask you to do, tidy up, whatever. Why? Because the house doesn't belong to me. It belongs to somebody else. And your body, it's not for you to do what you want with it, when you want with it. No, my, my body is not mine. It belongs to God. Realize that you belong to God. Acts 17 speaks about even as unbelievers and as Paul is speaking to the unbelievers, says, you know, uh, we live in him, we live and move and have our being. Like, like you're, you're, you're his creation. He's the one who even keeps you alive. That breath in your lungs belongs to God. You, you don't have a right over your life in that sense. And this would have been a powerful reminder that, that God owned them. And, that, and he's the one that provides them with rest. They had to exercise their faith. They had, faith. they had to trust in him. God had to provide even when they didn't sow their own harvest. God was the one who provided for them. And they had to walk in obedience to him. And that day of Jubilee actually started on the day of atonement when the ram's horn was blown and also signaled the forgiveness of God's people on that day. But my point here is that ancient Israel would have been keeping track of the sevens. Seven days in a week, the seven years in a cycle, the seven times seven to get to the 50th year of Jubilee. It was not a strange thing for them to think in terms of sevens. So when we get to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, and we read this in uh, Daniel chapter 9, it, it literally says, uh, where it says uh, the God has appointed uh, 70 weeks for his people. The literal Hebrew rendering of that is that 77s have been decreed for your people. 77s. And the question is, 77s of what? There, there's, there's seven units, uh, 70 units of seven. 70 units of seven is what it says. And some of you might have that footnote in your Bible that shows that that word for weeks is actually units of seven. So the question is, what, what kind of units of seven are we talking about? Are we talking about the, the seven days in a, in a week? Are we talking about the, the, the seven years in a cycle? Are we talking about the, the seven times seven? I mean, it's like there's, there's all these sevens that they're, they're thinking of. But if you back up into the, the context in verse two, it lets us know that Daniel was thinking in sevens of years. Verse two, it says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel's already been thinking in terms of years, not weeks. And the Babylonian captivity was a result, like we mentioned before, in part of them neglecting the Sabbath years, the seven cycles of years. So how many of those Sabbath years, those, seven, uh, those sevens, did Israel neglect? They neglected 70 of those sevens. 70 of those seven years. And there's a parallel now between those 77s and the 77s in verse 24. What we're talking about is a cycle of seven years. Those are the 77s that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. They neglected the 77s 
And God says, I'm going to decree for you 70 sevens. There's a parallel between the two. And uh, this, again, is just not some random number that God pulled out of a hat. He's doing this for a purpose. 70 sevens, seven, 70 times seven is 490. And that's how long Israel neglected to be obedient to the Lord's Sabbath's commands. And uh, 70 sevens would be cut out of history so that the Lord could deal with them. The word for decree in verse 24 only shows up here in Scripture. It basically means to cut off, to decide, to appoint. I've separated out for you this portion of time, these 77s of years, these 490 years, I've set aside to specifically deal with you. I've separated out this time for you. And all the 70s, uh, all the sevens of years don't come together in the text. They're divided up into segments of 7, 62, and 1. And, and that's what the text itself provides us with. That those 70 years are divided up into 7, 62, and 1. Down in verse 25, it says, So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And then down in verse 27, there's this final week, and it says, And he, and we'll talk about who that he is, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So we have a seven we have a 62, and we have a 1 that all total up to 70. That's what the text itself does. That's how the text itself breaks that down. So the question is, why is it broken up and what's going on? So the first thing that we have to look at is the summary of the plan. Uh, we already looked at that in verse 24. There's a summary of the entire 70 weeks. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to steal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. In those 70 weeks, again, on a high level, what were those 70 weeks about? God is doing away with sin and bringing in righteousness. That's what those 70 weeks are about. He's doing away with sin, he's bringing in righteousness, and it centers on Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. And we covered that last time. That's a summary of the plan. But that's just the first part of the plan. There's a second part, the restoration of the city. Look at verse 25. It says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's a prophecy here about the holy city, Jerusalem, that it would be restored, rebuilt, and that's exactly what happened. The city was torn down and was built back up and God was true to his word. But there's some debate about what decree it was that issued this rebuilding of the city. And uh, we know of at least... Um, uh, three kind of returns to uh, Jerusalem. We know that under Cyrus, uh, uh, the king of Persia, he made a decree in the year 538 uh, that allowed the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. Following his decree, there were waves of Jews, the Jewish people who returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel in uh, 538, under Ezra in 458, and under Nehemiah in 445 BC. And if you flip back past uh, Psalms and Job and Esther, you'll find the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you uh, would turn back to, to uh, Ezra, the book of Ezra, just to show you this in Ezra chapter 1. And this is, this is incredible to think about. Ezra chapter 1. Listen to what it says here. Ezra chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom 
and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, uh, Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And uh, this is something that was already predicted 200 years before Cyrus conquered Babylon. Uh, back in Isaiah chapter 44, uh, the, the Lord already predicted that uh, there would come this conqueror by the name of Cyrus. He says that this is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. That's, that's incredible to think about. 200 years before you're, you're even on the scene that God calls you out by name. Do you understand how, how sovereign the Lord is? The, 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 the detail? But there are these stages in that plan for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And the, the first part of that plan was for the temple. And Cyrus is the one who decreed the rebuilding of the temple, specifically the house of the Lord. That's what Cyrus was responsible for. That was the initial focus of Cyrus's decree. Uh, that's what they were given permission to do. And there's some who think that, well, that, that, that had to be all of it, wasn't it? But the prophecy in Daniel 9 was for the rebuilding of the city. And part of a city, what actually distinguished a city from just villages, was the building of a wall. The wall around it distinguished villages from a city. So the primary characteristic of a, of a city was also the walls. In ancient times, uh, cities were places where, you know, there was a boundary. You know, it was fortified. Cities were fortified, walled in for their own protection. So there was a difference between a city and a village and that's not what Cyrus decreed for Jerusalem. He decreed for the, the temple, not for the city to be rebuilt, not for the walls to re, be rebuilt, which is the difference between Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is the building of the temple. Nehemiah is the building of the, the wall. So that's what we have. We have is this, this difference between the two. Actually, in uh, the book of, of Ezra, you had the people uh, of the land discouraging the people of Judah and they actually sent back letters saying that, hey, they're, they're rebuilding their city. They're rebuilding their walls. And they had to, to show proof that Cyrus had already made a decree that they could build up the, the temple. Hey, we're here building up the temple, just like Cyrus said we should. You know, Cyrus has given us this decree to build up the temple. But they sent a complaint that, hey, they're building the walls up again. And once they build up the wall, they'll be their own fortified city. They won't pay tribute back to you. So uh, they, they try to come up with this, uh, this kind of uh, 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 really confusing things. They're, they're trying to uh, oppose the work of God, uh, you know, try to stop the work from going forward. And this is where the details of the text are really helpful for us because Daniel 9 speaks about a plaza and a moat. The plaza would have been beyond the gates and you don't have a gate without a wall. And a moat would have been around the walls, and you don't have a moat unless you have the, the walls around the city. So they all had to come together. They had to come together. And where do we find this decree to actually build up the, the, the wall? Where do we find that decree? Why don't you flip over to uh, the book of, of Nehemiah? The book of Nehemiah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1. Start at verse 1 here. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. 
that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Then I heard these words. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And something should start to sound really familiar about Nehemiah's prayer. Who who does this sound like? Sounds just like Daniel. This is the same kind of prayer that Daniel was making for the city. So, So here Nehemiah is and he's offering the same prayer. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you. You have and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and Do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens. I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants, your people, whom you redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. What, What man is he talking about? It says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. And it came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence and it's not a good idea to be sad in the presence of the king when you're tasting his wine before him to make sure that it's not poisoned. You know, for you to have a sad expression on your face uh, might cause the king some concern, you know, that you're drinking this wine before him and you're upset, you know, you're startled, something might be up with the wine says, I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, and see how he prays in the, right, right in the middle of this conversation. I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. In verse 7, and I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And verse 6 says, so it pleased the king to send me. So he sent him. He sent him back to, to rebuild the walls. And this is the decree, the decree of Artaxerxes for the building, the rebuilding of the city and its walls. And the, it's one of the best known dates in ancient history. It's known when Artaxerxes came to power as 465, and the 20th year would have been 445. And if you're interested in working through all the details, you can check out the book Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Harold Honer. And Honer argues that the timing works out if you take 445 BC and you add the number of years, you know, the, the Sabbath years that, you know, uh, after the, the building of, of the city, if you add up the years in Daniel chapter 9, that you actually land on the day of the triumphal entry. Calvin suggested that it was the day of the baptism of Christ, but there's good, good and strong evidence that it would be the triumphal entry. Actually, flip back to flip over to the book of Luke real quick. Luke chapter 19. 
Luke chapter 19. Take a look at verse 41. This is Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem, verse 41. It says, when he had approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the day. And it could be that Jesus is not just referring, referring to a period of time, but to this day. You should have known this day. But either way, if you take the decree of Artaxerxes and you move forward in the number of weeks of, of years, you know, seven weeks of years, uh, plus, uh, which is 49, and then you add the, the 62 weeks of years, if you add up those weeks of years, that you land during the time of Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing to, to think about the, the Messiah being predicted to, to come in that time frame. Now flip back to, to Daniel chapter 9. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the time that we're talking about, this, this uh, uh, decree by Artaxerxes, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And uh, all you have to do is look at the book of Nehemiah to know that the wall was built during a time of distress. They tried to stop the, the uh, building of the, the walls. Those who were building the walls had to carry you know, their work instruments in one hand and a sword in the other to defend themselves you know, because they're, they're uh, in distress. They're being opposed for the work. But the city was rebuilt just like Daniel said it would be. If you uh, move in, in history to that, uh, that period of time after that, uh, the building of the city, he said it would be uh, seven, uh, seven weeks for the, the building of the, the city and then uh, 62 beyond that uh, for the, the coming of the Messiah. And uh, what makes this so significant is that it's a divine confirmation that all of history is operating on God's schedule. As R.C. Sproul would say, there's not one maverick molecule in the universe, there's not one event that's not planned for, planned for. And even the distresses that we face in this life are not a surprise to God. The rebuilding of Jerusalem, the arrival of the Messiah, the prince are clear evidence to us that everything else that God has promised will also be fulfilled. And don't, don't miss this. I think that sometimes we can get caught up in you know, all the, the details of the prophecy uh, that we fail to uh, uh, acknowledge that, that this is a prophecy about Christ, <laughs> That this is saying that the Messiah is coming. Messiah, the prince, the, the, the one who, who has been designated as the ruler of the world, that this one will come. Uh, the word Messiah, it's uh, the, the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed, the anointed one. You have different you know, figures that were anointed. You know, priests were anointed. You know, uh, uh, prophets were anointed. But the uh, kind of like primary designation of the anointed one was the king. And that's what we find in the, uh, the book of of, uh, of Psalms in Psalm 2, where it speaks about the anointed one, the anointed one. This is the, the one who the, the Lord himself is designated in verse 1 of uh, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take, their, uh, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
This is the one, like I said, the one who laughs last, laughs best. This is the one who is to come. This Messiah, he was already predicted he would come and he will come again. So, so don't miss that this is a prediction of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come after this uh, Jerusalem was rebuilt with plaza and moat in that seven weeks and 62 weeks that he would come. But he would also be cut off and have nothing in the, the next verse, and we'll get to that. But even though the Messiah would be cut off and the temple would be torn down, that's not the end of God's story. Like we said before, that trouble doesn't last always. Trouble will see its end, and we can thank God for that. And there's many who would interpret this passage and uh, hold to the literalness of the destruction of Jerusalem, that hey, uh, Jerusalem's going to be torn down in, uh, uh, in, in this time and uh, after the 62 weeks that Messiah will be cut off, the people would have nothing, the city would be destroyed, the sanctuary would be destroyed. They would look to the literalness of, of that, but not look to the literalness of the restoration as well. There's, a, there's coming a restoration. There's coming a jubilee for the people of God, and we should long just as much for Israel to receive that restoration as we do for ourselves, right? There, there's coming a time when Israel itself will receive that, that year of, of jubilee where they will receive uh, this release, property being restored, debts being canceled. They'll be set free to glorify God. There's coming a time when that will happen for them. And creation itself, like I said, will be set free from its slavery to corruption and the freedom of the children of God, and that will be a glorious day. And we're looking forward to that time when uh, God brings about everything that he has promised. These 70 weeks is in order to bring about the completion of this end of transgression and the bringing in of, of righteousness. And we're looking forward to that prayer being answered. If you do not hold to a future plan for Israel, if you do not hold for this future redemption of these people, basically what you're saying is that Daniel's response to this prayer, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hear, O Lord, answer, that basically the response is, uh, uh, well, they'll just all be destroyed. And, you know, the kingdom will be taken away from them and there's nothing left for them. Is that the encouragement that Daniel was praying about? <laughs> or is it that, no, there's coming this destruction, but there is an afterwards. There's a second chapter to God's story. Yes, they're going to be broken down. Yes, there's going to be opposition, but there is more to come. Just like the Messiah who was uh, put to death, this Messiah who was cut off, that he's coming back. And even though the city would be torn down, that there's coming a future city that won't be torn down. And that's what we're looking forward to. This is something that we can all rejoice in, that God has the last say in his story. And this is his story. This is what he's doing. And we can look forward to all that this means. And we've got more to cover, and hopefully that'll just... Uh, kind of set it up for what we have to jump into next time because there's a lot of details to, to work, work into here. But uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask his blessings on uh, those who are uh, coming into membership even today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. And uh, Father, we uh, just trust that uh, your word would um, uh, really resonate with us, Lord, that we would think about uh, these promises, uh, Father, that these promises are true, now, Father, that the, uh, the, the time frame that you've set apart uh, for Israel to be dealt with, Lord, that, that all those things will come to pass just as you've indicated that they would. And Father, we've uh, uh, already seen in, in history the, the 69 weeks already fulfilled. And, and Father, there's that one that we still have to get to. My Father, is that one that uh, we'll uh, look forward to, Lord, even as uh, uh, we look to the, the text of, of next week. 
Now, so Father, I pray that you would uh, uh, just give us a, uh, just a, a confidence in you, a confidence in, in your word of being fulfilled, that uh, you are the God who, who hears prayers, who answers prayers, and uh, Father, a God who will rescue your people. And uh, Father, we're grateful that we've been rescued because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and that there's coming a time when uh, we will even be resurrected, Lord, to uh, take back what's uh, uh, really been so ravaged, Lord, uh, in this life. Now, Father, the, uh, the creation that, that groans, uh, Father, will one day uh, receive its freedom, freedom from captivity, Lord, as uh, the, the sons of God are, are, are revealed. And even as uh, Colossians chapter 3 says that when Christ is revealed, that even we will be revealed with him in glory. Now, Father, I, I look forward to that day. I pray that we as a church look forward to that day. There's glory to come. Uh, so, Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, uh, help us to reflect upon that glory which uh, belongs to you and uh, will be reflected in us. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.